Very good morning, everybody. It is July 19th, I think, 2021. It's a Monday, and I didn't really check my dates today. But yeah, I'm back to doing this on a Monday, just for this week, probably. Um, Welcome to No Easy Answer. This is the wonderful and amazing, beautiful, and highly entertaining podcast, in my opinion, about all sorts of fun topics underneath the sun, examined through a biblical perspective, trying to bring this all into light and understanding as best as I got it, and hopefully give you some points to think about so you can go after it yourself. Welcome, it is so good to be back. Uh, I was on vacation this last week, so apologies, I know it said I was going to do the podcast last week, but I was out at the beach, and it was good. Good. It had been these two years since we've taken a, a serious vacation and got the kids out and actually gone somewhere as a family, so that was a really good time. And I uh, had a friend visiting us as well, and that was really wonderful uh, to catch back up. So that was a uh, really good, good, good time, at least for myself. I know my wife, she's like, you go to the beach, you don't rest. <laughs> Try to make sure the kids don't drown, which is out there as much as I could, but still the, the worry factor is there. So, um, But yeah, we're back at it. We're continuing to talk about violence, and this last episode I talked about was kind of an introduction to environmental violence, Um, and I ended kind of a negative Nelly note because I was talking about just all the bad stuff that is going on in the planet, in the world, in God's creation. And uh, as I talk about this, uh, last week I was like, man, I I don't want to end on this negative note. I really don't want to end on a negative note because it's just, that's all you ever hear about environmental stuff. It just ends as kind of like, ugh, yeah, which to me is very disempowering. And the other thing it means is that people don't want to actually make a change because it just feels like it's so negative that why in the world would I even try to make a change? if it all just seems like it's going to fall apart and we're all going to die anyways. And that that is not an empowering attitude. I also mentioned how many, when you get down to the, the deep depths of it, if you ask an environmentalist that really knows their stuff, what's the best thing I can do for the environment? Typically they're going to say, just dig your own grave, throw yourself into it and die. Because uh, really the, the concept is that human beings are an error on the face of the planet. That we are a virus, we are a scourge, we are using all the resources more than more than we should, and we're destroying ecosystems left and right, and that's, we're just out of place here, and we should really not exist. Um, Or if we should exist, it really should just be more like native peoples uh, living in the jungle or in the forests and living in harmony with nature, and and that's about it. Uh, And yet, I know native peoples also have done things to their own environments. I mean, look at Easter Island, and they just, they didn't destroy the place, but I mean, they made it uninhabitable for people because they used all the resources, native peoples. Uh, so all that to say, I mean, it's like, ugh, I hate landing on this negative thing. And, and one thing I did say I was going to talk about a little more on the biblical basis for why we should take care of creation. I mentioned some of that briefly, but just, just to dive into a little more, um, I want to do that before I turn this around, because I, I really don't think, especially from a biblical, solid biblical perspective, there's absolutely no reason that we should have to choose between loving people and loving the environment. Those are not mutually exclusive things in the least, at all. Uh, now, the how of how we do that, that, that might require some changes. 
and at the same time just sacrificing for ourselves or loving ourselves or, or loving our, those of our families or those around us does not sacrificing for the good of the environment does not necessarily mean that we have to sacrifice uh, each other either. So I, I really want to get into that. Um, but just kind of a quick biblical overview, and again, my apologies so I'm repeating a little bit. Remember, when God created mankind, we talked about Adam and Eve, when he put them in, in his creation, at first he created the environments, right? He, the first few days of, of creation, he's creating these environments. He's setting them up um, as places to be inhabited. So first he creates the light and the dark, so that becomes the day and night. Uh, he didn't create the dark, it was already there, but he created light. So he separates them two and creates these two different environments, temporal environments, day and night. Then he separates the waters and he creates two spatial environments. We have uh, the waters below, the sky or the firmament, whatever you want to call it, and then we got the waters above. Uh, and then on the third day, he takes the waters that are below and he draws them together and dry land appears. And so now we've got another set of environments. So we have two temporal environments, day and night, and then we've got three or four spatial environments. We've got the waters below, the dry land, the firmament, and the waters above. And then goes on, then God goes on in day four, five, and six to populate these environments. Uh, the only one he actually doesn't populate are the waters above, but again, we see in, in the story of Noah, the waters above fall to the earth, so God kind of knew, hey, it's not going to be around for too long. We're not going to worry about populating that thing. Um, so he populates uh, the two temporal environments, with uh, the stars, the moon, and the sun, the sun to rule over the day, the moon to rule over the night, and then the stars are also populating that. Um, And they're also there to indicate times and seasons, so they have a purpose within their temporal environments to actually indicate how time progresses, Uh, so it makes sense to use the sun, the moon, the stars, all that kind of stuff to determine times. That's the whole point of it. And then, uh, in the other environments, he begins to populate them. So, in the waters below, he fills them up with fish and sea monsters and all sorts of crazy stuff like that. And then, in the the part above, he he has the birds, the air start to fill that, even though they're on the land. And he also begins to make the land to produce uh, uh, trees or, or herbs that produce fruit, seed within them. And then also grass and that kind of stuff that produces its own after its own type. So we have different types of uh, ground covers, we'll say, <laughs> overall the face of the earth. And finally, six day of creation creates the animals that go across the face of the earth, and he puts man there to rule over all of it. Now that rule, that ruling is more the idea of like señorear in Spanish. And I'm sorry if you don't speak Spanish, but that word really means to. Um, what'd be the best way to put it? Yes, it is ruling, but it's not ruling like I'm going to rule over you and beat the crap out of you because um, there are different types of rulership and authority. But it's the idea of I'm taking care of this. My job is to make this to be fruitful, abundant, and to make it multiply as God called all of those things to do. He blessed them with these commands to be fruitful, to be multiplying, to fill the spaces that he had created. So it creates environments, he creates populations of the environments, and he creates authorities over those environments. Humans are really authorities over the environment of what is the land, and which is uh, the sky, and, and the, the environments of all the fishes and everything within the oceans, and the birds that fill the sky. So really we have rule over the things, 
over the populations of the sea and the sky and rule over the land itself and of the animals of the land. That, that's the place that God has given us rule over. But it's to take care of it, to make it be even more fruitful, to be even more abundant um, than it would have been in the other case. So that, that's the idea. And, and again, we see how God sets up this example of ruling because we see how he sets up the sun to rule. The sun is supposed to rule over the day. The moon is supposed to rule over the night. And that gives us clues about the rule, what that rule means. It's not like the sun says, I'm taking over all of it. All of it. Day and night completely. No, the sun knows where its spot is. It just does the day and it does it consistently. And you can count on it. Same thing with the moon. The moon goes through more temporal phases than, than the sun does. Uh, but you, again, you can count on it. You can measure according to it. And it gives you an idea of what's going on. And it's not unpredictable, nor is it unruly. It is a dedicated servant leadership that really provides a basis and the framework for life to exist and to thrive by. That is the same type of rule that we're called into over all of God's creation that he's given us rule over. And that is what we were supposed to be doing, not just going out and destroying things. So that, that's kind of the, the biblical basis we're given there. He also put us in the garden to tend the garden and work it, and that's the whole part of, of that deal right there. So really, we have this job from the get-go as gardeners. Now, I know God is moving us towards the city at the end of the day. Is that, that's where we're going to. We're new, going to a new city. Nonetheless, it even says, within this new city, the kings of the, of the nations will bring forth the first fruits into, uh, into this city. So, yeah, there's still going to be a city there, but the earth is still going to be around. There's going to still be produce being made on the earth. So we're not going to be completely detached from the earth at any point ever. God never made a mistake forming us from the dust of the earth. And to think that we can get away from the dust of the earth is, is foolishness. So, all that to say... Uh, <laughs> Um, and even so, we see there's a general mandate throughout all of the biblical thing for us to really watch over for God's creation. I was even reading Jeremiah, Jeremiah 14 this morning in my own little readings, and uh, talking about how God's going to send this drought upon his people, and everyone's going to go out, and they're not going to find water. I mean, it's, it's going to be bad. There's going to be nothing there, and the, even the donkeys are going to be going thirsty, and there's not going to be stuff growing because nobody's got anything. There's going to be just massive hunger. thing that God promises people in Deuteronomy 28, if they didn't obey him, if they went after other gods, and that's what's going on. And he says, I'm, I'm not going to repent from this. I'm not going to change this. This is how it's going to be because they have not followed me, and these are the consequences for it. Um, and so he's using even his own creation to come back and use it as an instrument of correction, let's put it that way, for his people. Uh, even Revelation 11, chapter 11, I think verse 18, if I'm not mistaken, uh, we see the 24 elders at some point. The seventh trumpet has sounded, and we see all this kind of stuff going down, uh, destruction, earthquakes, and the seven elders uh, get up. And with the seventh trumpet, they begin to sing praise to God. And as part of the things, they say, now that you have done this, you're judging the earth. And now part of what you're going to be doing is you're going to destroy those who are destroying the earth. So God in his justice is going to bring about destruction upon those who are destroying the earth itself. Yeah, so that's there. That's definitely there. Now I'm sure there's lots of different interpretations what that could actually mean. But... Whatever, it's it's there. I don't think we need to read a whole lot into it or try to skip away from it. I think every time we have a tendency to be like, oh, that that's not what that means. Uh, we're just trying to self-justify ourselves, and that's always dangerous grounds. We need to be like, okay, maybe that means what that means, and that means I need to change. <laughs> that's 
my signal that I need to repent instead of being like, no, 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 that's not what that means. You can continue to throw your trash out on the ground and destroy the earth. That's not a problem. No, that's not what that means. And, and that's definitely not what that means to interpret that. Oh, yeah, we're here to rule over the earth. That means we can just extract and destroy and disturb and do every evil thing you can think of, instructive thing with no consequences. That That's not, no, no, that, that's not cool. Uh, all right. So, getting into the good stuff. Here, here's the good stuff. I, I want to talk a little about this, and, and I'm going to go into some different areas here um, that I typically get into, but this is really a, a passionate area for me. This is something I really love and I really dive into, and this is really my, my second passion in life. Uh, and I try to do this as much as possible. My time is limited, and I'm working towards this, but I want to talk about uh, this particular topic and theme in this whole area, because I, I think it really does provide a positive path forward, where most environmental uh, messages are, we as a society at large are destroying the earth, all of us are destroying the earth, uh, so stop it. <laughs> that doesn't really work. Uh, on our vacation we went through an aquarium and they had a big thing talking about microplastics in the ocean something I talked about in the previous podcast and I, I agree it's a huge issue it's a very huge issue and so we talked about and some of the interesting thing I did know is a lot of the microplastics that are there aren't just from consumed plastics i.e. you throw a coke bottle out in the ocean uh, it's actually from the little pellets that the producers use uh, to produce the plastic. Sometimes those things are getting shipped across oceans and they got a jettison their, their cargo and that floats down there and starts creating these issues. So a large chunk of the microplastics are actually coming straight from the plastic producing people. But nonetheless, they showed a bunch of pictures of uh, some place in Asia and there were just some guys in a shop and like a commercial, you know, street side shop and they showed all these inflatable products and so they had a, a whole room just full of beach balls or full of flip-flops or full of whatever and and I've been in many places in in many places of the world and those shops are very common I've seen them in Colombia and Venezuela over the place and they're, they're all over the place and I've bought flip-flops there I know what it's like and I felt like why are we demonizing these people these people that are not making ends meet they're sitting in their shop trying to sell whatever they can uh, at the end of the day hopefully they can pay their bills with that and maybe there's something left over that they can eat with I don't know but they're doing the darndest they can just to try to get ahead in life and it, and it feels like ah, look at these people these are the enemies but the enemies are the people that are also buying and the people that are buying are causing the producers to make it and it's also causing the sellers to sell it if there is a demand, there will be a supply. And again, if you go down the road of environmentalism, really, when you come to that realization that as long as there's a demand, there will be a supply, and many times, if there's not a demand, we can fabricate a demand. We can create something and be like, you need this, through advertising and through other types of social manipulation. Um, and people will start to buy it, and all of a sudden there's a demand for it. Very well. And our consumer society, which says our value is basically what we consume, has become so ingrained with us that even my own children, which drives me nuts, they feel like every time they go out, they got to get something. Like, no, I've never agreed to that whole concept. And yet, somehow, they have this ingrained in their minds. If they go to a store, they have to get something. Like, no, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> Not in any stretch of the imagination do you need to do that. And yet, they feel like they're entitled every time they go somewhere to get something. And nine times out of ten, they don't. But that sure doesn't stop them from asking. And what that means is that desire is there. I'm out. 
I have to get something. I have to acquire something. But then that acquiring, what does that mean? Where did this thing actually come from? How was it produced? How much pollution was involved with it? How much energy was involved in its production? How far was it transported to get here? And we just got, got, go down this road of farther and farther and farther things. And really, the best thing to do is just simply not get it. At the same time, I know, well, how many people did that employ for this thing to get here? That, that kept a lot of people fed. It kept a lot of people uh, with jobs. It kept a lot of people with, with a certain amount of money so they can participate in society and, and have their needs met. I'm not unaware of all of this. And to say it's, it's just as simple to stop buying things, it, it's not. It's not that simple. Uh, the, the world is incredibly complex, and every action has... An, has more than an equal and opposite reaction. We're in a web, and so you touch one thing, and it's going to ripple out to many, many, many other things. So, um, again, if you feel like, man, this is so complicated, the only way is is to junk it and throw it, I mean, I I understand that, but the consequences of that junking it and throwing it are big. They're not small. They are very big. So, you're listening to this, uh, and you're like, you know, I do want to do something, but I'm like, eh, it's just too heavy. What can I do? Well, let me introduce uh, a topic and a theme and an area of design that I love, and it's, it's called permaculture. And, and I don't know if you've heard about permaculture yet. I mean, it's definitely growing popular in the past, I'd say even 10 years. It's exploded, and that's kind of when I started finding out about it. Probably eh, 10 years ago. Yeah, probably about 10 years ago. More than that. Uh, now... So anyways, then I started diving into it, and I really loved it because I felt like this was a really cool way in which we could look at different ways in which we can actually take care of God's creation um, and actually care for people at the same time. Now, a little bit of a disclaimer, permaculture is not a Christian thing, per se. It is a, an idea, a concept, and, and even within that idea or concept, there are many, 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 many interpretations of what it could be. It, it was kind of created to be, in a sense, viral and spreadable um, and adaptable. And so to the point that, as one of the permaculture people say, you could stick a piece of gum on the end of a stick and call it permaculture. Because there really is no regulation within permaculture. And that can create all sorts of conflict and whatnot within that world. So uh, because I'm talking about this does not mean I'm sitting talking about sitting out in a hippie commune and smoking marijuana and trying to commune with the Pachamama. That, that is not what I'm talking about, okay? So just, and I know some people have had that type of experience, and I apologize for that, but that, that is not my view and understanding and concept of what I would like permaculture to be for me. Now, it may be for someone else, and I'm not going to rain on their parade. That's fine. But for me, I, I kind of come at it a different way, and I can, I can teach permaculture from Genesis, actually. I can do that, um, which I'm not going to do in this podcast, but all to say, there are three main ethics of permaculture, uh, which are generally summarized as the following, and I'm going to do kind of the most updated one, but it tends to be earth care, people care, and the new one, which I really like, future care. Now, that, that last one uh, was put together, or the, these three ethics were really put together by a guy named Bill Mollison and David Holmgren. Um, uh, both Australians, and they came up with this whole thing in like the 70s, working at it, looking at all sorts of different things, and Bill Mollison was incredibly well-read. Supposedly, the legend says that he had a uh, like a shipping container full of books, 
and supposedly you could say, hey, what's on page 42 of this book there? And he would tell you what was on page 42 of that book there, and you could go in there and read it, and he'd be saying it word for word. So he was incredibly well-read, and supposedly, I'm not sure how, how true that is, but incredibly well-read, and he was able to synthesize a lot of his own readings, a lot of his own observations within life, and put together this, this concept of how this whole thing could go together. Um, now, when he's doing this in the 70s, this was kind of like the, the beginning of the environmental concern movement, and so his, his three ethics really were earth care, people care, and population control, which made sense back in the 70s. So people were like, oh my gosh, we're overpopulating the planet. We're, we're going to run out of food. This is going to be a mess. It's going to be a disaster. And I think we've kind of blown through most of the limits that most people talked about in the 70s and that was, those disasters have not really happened. Um, and so permaculture being this ever-flexible, evolving thing that it is, is it's kind of changed. So sometimes they talk about... Uh, people care, earth care, fair share, like returning the abundance of a, of a product to the system which created it. Um, but I kind of like the future care because it just makes sense and it's like you're trying to take care of things for the future. So you're not just looking at what you can get today, you're looking at what can actually do for all of time. Uh, so what it, again, what is permaculture? Again, that, that's a very difficult thing to pin down. But Within those three ethics, I think what that means is that we're looking for the convergence of things which actually do take care of the environment and take care of people at the same time. And this is absolutely 100% doable. This is not some sort of like, oh yeah, it's just a theory, but it doesn't work in practice. No, this is being done. It's being done in practice. It has been done in practice for decades, and it takes many different forms in many different ways. And it does work. Now, there's times where it has not worked, and people have made messes of it, and that's pretty much every field. And so, I, I mean, that happens anywhere you look at anything. I mean, there's businesses that don't work, and yet someone says, oh, that business closed down, so I guess we better stop having businesses. No, nobody thinks that way. Or it's like, oh, wow, that engineer made a mistake on that bridge, and the bridge fell down. I guess we better stop having engineers nobody says that or wow that pastor really messed up I guess we should stop having pastors well more people do say that than things but that, that's not the idea so just because there are certain failures within a field does not mean that the field itself is uh out of it or wrong or or completely um not correct so we do have to accept certain amount of failures and this is generally kind of a new thing as well so we we would expect to see a lot of failures. But the idea is to, even Bill Mollison said, I want to try to create as many failures as possible so I know what doesn't work as much as what does work. So there's not a, there's not a problem with doing that. Okay, so what is permaculture? My understanding, the way I like to work around permaculture is within those three ethics of earth care, people care, and future care, uh, the idea is that this is a design science which, and I shouldn't even say science, but a design regimen which takes those three ethics, tries to work and mimic the patterns of nature in such a way that can create productive perennial systems that benefits people in their health, their well-being, their community. All right, so let me just see if I can say that again and try to get it all. <laughs> Is a design regimen or design parameters that encompass those three ethics that try to mimic natural systems and nature itself in creating perennial systems that benefit human beings in their health, their well-being, and their communities. 
So let me break that down a little bit. What that means is I'm going to try to create and design things that work with nature. These are natural systems that I'm using my own God-given human ingenuity, work, effort, time, and abilities into to create these systems that would probably not be found in nature otherwise, but that mimic natural systems. So I'm working with nature instead of working against nature, which was what most people do, work with nature in such a way that I'm going to be able to create the maximum benefit not only for nature, but also for myself. And that should increase my own health, it should increase the health of everyone within my own community, and it should increase my, my general well-being. And that well-being, I'm, I'm leaving very open, because that increased my well-being not only in my own health and my own sense of satisfaction in life, and my own happiness, but it can also increase even my economic well-being. Uh, so I'm, I'm not trying to say that, oh, if you do permaculture, you can't participate in the economy. No, you absolutely can uh, to the degree to which you want to. Now, some people don't want to participate in the, in, the, in the general economic community. They'd rather be just absolutely self-sufficient, off-grid, and you can do that. And permaculture will, will teach you how to do that. Um, so you can be completely self-sufficient and you don't need to participate with the larger world outside. If you want to do that, you can. That's not a problem. But many of us are in communities and we would like to have that human interaction. Um, and we do want to participate within the economic world. And you can do that. That is the way you can do it. And there are many examples of people that are making money. I'm going to go through some of those in just a little bit uh, in such a way that really does benefit a lot of people and does benefit the society at large. So it's, it's again, this is not an either or type thing. Um, now, i got to go into work. When I come back, I'm going to dive into this a little bit deeper. I'm going to go into some examples of some people that are doing this and kind of what this looks like. But really, this is just to kind of wet your whistle. Um, and I'm going to get to one of the main things you can do to really help benefit God's creation and some things to avoid so you don't get in that mess. So I will hit you on the flip side. I'm not going to be able to give a full kind of thing on permaculture, but I want to give a few examples of, of how this kind of thinking can work. Um, and we're going through these ethics and with this, these ideals that uh, we can have... Um, that we don't have to work in conflict with nature, that it's not a question of, oh, can I have economic stability or I have to kill an animal to do that. Now, maybe we should start with some negative examples because I, I, I can understand where these things happen, right? Because this happens all the time, especially when you run into endangered species. You're trying to build something or develop something. You try to take a piece of land and make it into a neighborhood and all of a sudden it turns out, oh, this was actually a nesting spot of some bird that's on, you know, the way to extinction, and all, all of a sudden, all of your, the money that the developer's trying to put into this thing is just not going to happen. You know, it's not that the developer is inherently evil, or they're even evil at all, they're just like anybody else, they're trying to make some money on their investment, and so they have put time and effort and money to make this thing work, and all of a sudden, it turns out, oh, there's an animal there that's going to throw the whole thing off. Uh... You know, that is, I mean, I understand. So I'm, I'm in some ways, I'm, I'm much more practical than the typical environmentalist. I, I'm kind of more of like, if it's if it's hardy and robust, it kind of deserves to live. But I, I believe nature is infinitely adaptable. Now, I'm not saying we should go out and kill endangered species by any stretch of the imagination. No, I think we, need, we can work around that to some degree. But I understand that sometimes in the effort to protect something, 
there's an inordinate amount of time spent on on one element of nature, while the rest of it gets completely trashed and ignored and destroyed. Uh, so, all right. So let, let's start with a, a few different things. Like for example, um, I'll I'll start with my own very small, very small example here. When I was a teacher in Columbia at a high school, all the rooms um, that I taught this high school did not have air conditioning, which was hilarious because it was like the hot, one of the hottest spots in all of Columbia, uh, and had got very little, very little wind except for the, in the middle of storms and things like that. So in this place in Columbia where I taught, it was always hot. Teachers had to scream over the, the students because it was difficult. There wasn't a way to really channel sound in, so everyone was going hoarse. Uh, and they had a lot of, you know, crew, uh, ground maintenance folks, and the, the, the areas that went out to the classrooms had a dirt patio, uh, like a little bit of a backyard for each classroom, which is kind of cool, but nothing was really being grown there. There were some mango trees over here and there. Sometimes some of them didn't have a tree, some didn't, um, and that was that. Well, I suggested, hey, let, let's try to do something, and we actually made it a research project for the students to be involved in, and we, we installed a banana circle. Now, permaculture is not a banana circle. A banana circle is the result of permaculture design. Uh, there are many techniques that you can use in permaculture, but the technique is not permaculture itself. Permaculture is, is the, the mindset that brings you to that technique that helps you apply it in the correct context, because you can't be like, oh, I'm going to do a banana circle in Alaska. That does not work. What is a banana circle? Banana circle is basically dig a hole in the ground, maybe six feet wide or so, maybe about three feet deep, maybe not even so deep. And then uh, once you've dug that hole, you take all the dirt from the hole, you stick it around the outside of the hole. So basically you've made uh, a hole and then you've made a mound along the perimeter of the hole on the outside. Within the hole that you've dug, you begin to fill this hole with all sorts of organic waste and trash. So in, in our case, in our context, we had lots of leaves from the trees. The grounds guys were always uh, taking away. There's old mangoes that the iguanas hadn't eaten. Uh, there was you know, even some residual from uh, the cafeterias area that we could throw in there. Uh, grass clippings, all that kind of stuff. Old trees, branches, anything from there we could throw in there. And we actually measured how much material we could throw in this thing. And we rose to fill it up with about literally a ton of material. Uh, and, and that almost filled it up. We, I had had a little more. And so over the course of time, I think we ended up putting almost two tons of material over the course of a year into uh, that banana circle. Now on that mound of dirt that was excavated from there, uh, I was able to you plant in bananas, obviously. Uh, any kind of plant that does not have long woody branches would work. So papayas work, uh, bananas work. There might be a few other examples of things I'm not thinking of right now. Um, that can grow and they're not going to cause interference when they're growing close together. And in the base you can plant your root crops, you can plant, plant sweet potatoes, you can plant ginger, you can plant turmeric, you can plant all sorts of stuff. I put, grab some things, put it in there, most of it got eaten by the iguanas, but the bananas began to take off. Uh, and then the other thing I did is I, I the, my physics laboratory, which is one of the very few places that had air conditioning, I took the condensation line coming out of the air conditioning unit, which was just dripping water and it's causing grass to grow. I directed that right to the center of the banana circle. And so now it was getting water by a byproduct of the air conditioning unit. So what happened? Uh, the material, the organic material began to break down and basically 
created rich compost, which was good for the growing of the banana plants. The banana plants began to grow, and they began to produce bananas of various sorts and varieties. Now, I didn't know much this time, so I put thinking, and generally speaking, diversity is a good thing, but not always. Uh, and so I planted multiple varieties of banana plants. That's probably not a good thing because they can get viruses and send it to each other. You want just one variety, as I learned later. But even so, even with that, I still had a lot of success. It worked very well. Uh, that room or, or that patio there provided that room with much more shade than the other patios got. Uh, the grass around it began to grow a lot more, so it began to get much more fertile situation. Another interesting little thing is that even though the banana circle creates this mound so water can't directly pour into it, the act of all that uh, organic material breaking down and the acts of the roots of the banana plants in the soil actually made it so that that patio, when it rained incredibly hard like it does, tends to do in the tropics in the wet season, it didn't flood nearly as much as the other patios. The other patios flood and the water would stick around for a very long time. Uh, and that one, no, it would, it would, the water would fall on it, it would build up, and then it would drain incredibly quickly. So it was actually absorbing more water and taking water away so we were getting less chances of mosquitoes or anything like that. And so we were able to save, here's all the benefits that come out of this, uh, we were able to save the transport of this organic material because they were just simply transporting it off to some dump and then burning it. So instead of adding more carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, we actually created a carbon sink. So now the plants are absorbing carbon dioxide and then uh, turning that into woody plant material, which is now being composted, which does release some carbon dioxide, not a whole lot, uh, into the soil. So we're actually adding carbon to the soil. We've created a carbon sink. We've reduced the amount of transportation that needs to be done. We've reduced the amount of work that needs to be done. We've provided a research project for the students, so they're learning more. They're getting involved. They're getting their hands dirty. Uh, we've provided, a, uh, you know, not a significant source of food, but a, somewhat of a source of food by the bananas that's being produced and other things that are in there. And um, we've reduced the amount of flooding there. So we began to implement this in other patios as well. So we put another one there, and they had this roof drain system that would go to these boxes, and these boxes would fill up with water before they drain out through this other drain. And I said, let's dig up the box and put a banana circle there. And so we did that. And so now we've reduced more of the mosquitoes that were hanging around, less d disease vectors and all this kind of stuff. So really you're bringing a system that brings benefits all the way around um, in multiple ways. And it's using really the waste streams of what's already out there. It's, it's connecting the different elements of systems, both natural and man-made, to connect to each other. So now we've created a system where there's benefits and all the outputs of each of the individual components become inputs to another individual component. It's that type of thinking that really does kind of make things work and spin around in such a way that they can help. Now, uh, I don't know if you remember I was talking about Kiribati in the last, uh, last little uh, podcast I did. The reason I learned about that was part of our research project. And the kids started looking up other places where they'd done banana circles and turns out this area was an area that they, they did this. Um, since the island was having so much problems with, one, the water levels rising, they're like, how can we build up out of this? Uh, they're separating out their trash, their organic trash, from their plastic trash. And uh, transporting trash off the island was very expensive, so they realized we need a way to take care of the trash on the island. And so they basically went around and, and some NGOs started teaching people how to make this, these banana circles in their own backyards. 
And the benefits were similar in their own backyards. People were able to get compost for their own backyard gardens. They were able to grow more of their own food. They were able to dispose of all their household organic trash within the banana circle so they could keep the plastic separated out so they could use that for their other projects in the island to try to build the island up. Um, and it was a very big benefit for the island. Like the amount of actual trash collected by the island. I mean, this is less miles driven. This is a less gas burns, I mean, reduced by, I think, 40%. I'd have to go back and check my numbers on it. But it was not a small amount. It was actually a very large amount that was reduced on the island. And now they're having to import less stuff on the island, less shipping. Uh, and they're becoming much more self-sufficient. And general quality of life is going up because now there's less trash everywhere. There's more food available. And people are in a better state of mind. And they're eating healthier as well. So really, this was just a win, 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 win all the way around. Um, now, let me talk about some other examples. Uh, let's, let's talk about, and, and again, many people think permaculture is like, oh, let's just make an herb spiral. I'll let you look up what an herb spiral is, or I gotta make a brick oven. Uh, not necessarily. It, it's finding the right, the right solution for your context. And many times, the phrase you always hear in permaculture is the problem is the solution, which some people like, some people hate. I think it's a good place to start at least. Um, to be like, well, I have a problem here. Maybe that problem is actually the solution. Maybe the issues that are being presented by this problem are really the seeds for that solution are in the problem itself. How can I figure out a way to look at this? And maybe a better way to phrase it is there are no problems, there are only opportunities. Now there's, there's, uh, there's something that's presented itself, how can I take care of it? So for example, um, Mark Shepard, who's in Wisconsin, he's been doing this for quite a while. He's probably one of the oldest permaculture farms in the States, at least. Uh, he started back in the late 80s, early 90s, I want to say. Uh, so he's been at this for a while. And within his context, he wanted to start growing chestnuts. Um, he bought a piece of land, realized he wanted to get out of the rat race, this is what he wanted to do. And he got out and started making it happen. And he decided, for whatever reason, he wanted to grow chestnuts, which do not grow well in his region if they grow at all. And so he bought thousands of chestnut trees and began to, or seeds, began to plant thousands of chestnut trees and most of them died. Thousands died. But there was a few that made it. And so he took those few and he began to raise those up and then he get the seeds and the nuts out of the ones, those ones, plant those ones, and many of those would also die. But the one, now there's more of them that stick around, so he kept basically breeding out so he got a variety that actually did work. Uh, now, he works in a more agricultural context, and so he works in an area where there is a lot more organic uh, type work being done. He was able to basically align with his community uh, in such a way that they were able to create what he calls the oil cartel. And he's done a lot of cool stuff, and I'm not going to get into it all today, but I'm just going to give this example of what he's done, which is, I think, a great way to show how uh, this type of thinking is a way that benefits both nature and people at the same time. Um, so he, he grows a lot of sunflowers, he grows a lot of oil producing crops. He's, he's more into, he does produce oil producing crops, but also he does a lot of perennial stuff. He likes trees, he likes berries, he's like the nutrition value you get out of that is going to be much higher than if you have to plant corn every year. Now, that doesn't mean it's evil to plant corn, that's just his way of interpreting things and he's probably got a lot of work to it because you plant a tree once and take care of it and then you get fruit off of it for decades, whereas you plant uh, corn once and you get food off of it once. <laughs> you got to go back and plant it again. So it does make sense. If you're looking at energy efficiency, yeah, your perennial systems, that means systems that you don't have to do every single year, annual or biannual, uh, they are more energy efficient. 
But in this case, we're not talking about perennial systems. He's talking about how he's growing a lot of sunflowers and other oil-producing crops mixed in, aka polyculture, not just growing fields and fields and fields of the same type of thing, which nature abhors. You're never going to see that in nature. Nature likes diversity, and that's also safety, because if there's a bug out there that just likes to eat one particular plant, if you plant a lot of that plant, that bug is in is in heaven and it's going to reproduce like crazy and you have no other option to save what you've planted except to spray it whereas in nature if the bug has to go and search for this thing it's it's going to have a harder time to reproduce and become such a pest um, so he plants multiple 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 things on a single acre and yes that makes it a little more complicated to uh, harvest sometimes, and but even then he will do things in rows, which some permaculture people are like, no, rows are evil. But again, you, there's a lot of ways to do this. There's a lot of ways to do it. Everything has its pros, has its cons, and that's up to the designer itself to determine what is best for them and what's going to work best in their context. What are their needs? What are they actually trying to accomplish? And let's let them design around that. Uh, but let's work with nature, not against it, and let's work for the benefit of everyone that's involved with it. Now, uh, what he does with all of his oil growing crops and all with all the guys in, in his area is they get together and um, somebody within that community decided, yeah, I'm going to work this. I'm, I'm going to, this is going to be become my job. And so this is actually a real paying job. And what they do is they go around, they collect all the oil crops from where that's growing them, and they process them and they extract the oil out of these things, so out of sunflowers or soybeans or whatever it is they're, they're growing there that they're trying to get oil out of. And I don't know if soybeans really give oil, but whatever. You get my, my idea. Um, uh, safflower, whatever it is. So they, they get the oil out of the stuff, and then out of all the stuff that they've pressed, they give that press back to the farmer itself. Now the farmer can take this pressed thing, instead of just harvesting it and sending it off to the, the oil factory, he gets this thing back, and now he can use this to feed it to his animals, or he can use it to compost, and he can put back in his fields and restore the uh, nutrient density of the soil itself and the quality of the soil. So these guys that press the oil, they, they get a job because they got all this oil, and then they go and they sell it to Frito-Lay. And so Frito-Lay goes there, and they make all their Doritos and Fritos and all that kind of stuff with it. And then these same guys, they go back to the oil factory, and guess what they do? They get back, basically given to them, the used burnt oil. Well, now they take this used burnt oil back, and then they do whatever it is they do to that, and then that's what they use all their machinery uh, that's, what they, that's what they use to run all of their machine, which is basically a diesel engine, but it's converted to run on the fry oil. So now they're not having to buy gas. They're actually using the same energy from their fields that's producing multiple products along the way. First of all, it's producing uh, feed for their animals. Second of all, it's producing biomass in the soil. Third of all, uh, it's producing oil for them to sell and to make money off of. That oil is used to make other food for people who aren't even involved in the whole thing. They're completely off-site, and now they're getting oil. Uh, to eat their Doritos and Fritos and all that kind of stuff. And then they're getting fuel back out of it, and they're making money at the same time. It's, they have really closed the loop in such a way that now they are, I'm pretty sure, carbon negative in a system like that, where they're not producing more carbon dioxide than what they're actually injecting and, and storing back in the ground. They're, and, and at the same time, they're increasing the fertility of the soil. They're in a system that people are getting jobs out of, they're being able to work, and they're making it a, a, a working uh, wage and a, and, a, and a positive lifestyle. That That is really kind of where you see the things start to come together and make big changes, um, positive, positive impacts. So, uh, 
I, I point this out because, again, I don't want to just be like, oh, environmental stuff, bad, we just need to sacrifice. No, not necessarily. And I think that that's a big thing. If we actually use the talents and gifts that God gives us to come together and work either on our own individual way or also within a, uh, a path that is uh, within a community, we can begin to create better systems that provide a much more sustainable and net creation positive benefit, net society positive benefit all the way around. That is not, those are not two things that are mutually exclusive. If you're willing to work, (laughs) if you're willing to actually put your focus on that. So, um, and there's much, much, much more, many more examples. I mean, I could talk about Joel Salatin of Polyface Farms. He, I mean, and it's not like you have to become a vegan to become a permaculturist either. I mean, he, he raises animals and he does this on crop on uh, field rotation. So he'll put his cows in a pasture and they'll eat down the grass. Then he has the chickens fall off to the cows and the, the chickens paw through all the, the cow poop when they eat all the pests that would be in the cow's poop otherwise. And so they cut off that cycle of, of pests in the cows. Uh, and now the field is fully fertilized and the chickens have spread around the manure so it's going to be even a better distribution of what's going on there and the chickens eat the new uh, grass that the the cows have cut down because the chickens don't want to go through tall grass Um, so now they're producing high quality uh, eggs and now he runs the pigs after the chickens and they do their own little bit and he lets the field recover and where he was working in, in Virginia I mean that ground was just rock when his own father started it and now he's got feet of soil so he's creating soil on a massive scale Uh, and he is incredibly profitable I think he's now working between his own farm which I think is 100 acres and then all the other projects he's got going on with other things he's is I don't know what his net is but I know he's his gross is about two million dollars a year um, and he, you know, he does lots of stuff. He goes around, he gives talks. He, he's a kind of a public figure at this point, but he has done a lot. And he makes the claim, whatever it may be, um, that actually an acre of grassland will absorb more carbon dioxide than an acre of tropical rainforest. I don't know if that's actually true or not, but I mean, he says if it's good, healthy, you know, grassland with multiple different varieties of grass on it, that's been rotationally grazed, that is most definitely carbon negative, I agree, but he, he claims that it even absorbs more carbon dioxide than the Amazon rainforest, which, I don't know, I'm just putting that out there, you can go and figure that out yourself, <laughs> um, but in such a way, he's using animals that are not destructive to the environment, now if you've got a feedlot, you've got 10 million cows on 5 acres, that's a problem. That's an environmental disaster right there. But what he's doing is not an environmental disaster. What he's doing is actually taking care of the cows. And the quality of his food is extremely high. He's had people that have come up to him, and, and he has doctors in the area that give uh, prescriptions to the patients to go and eat his food exclusively, and people get better. He's had one woman in particular come up, and her son was autistic, and she began to feed her son that food, and his autism disappeared. I mean, I don't know. So, I mean, go go check it out. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Go, go. Um, sorry, my windows are all fogged up. I could not see it. So, anyways, uh, all I have to say, there are many, 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 many things that are really quite amazing that um, can be done if you put your mind to it. One little thing I kind of want to leave off on. Um, you can check out a website called permies.com that's run by a guy named Paul Wheaton. Um... He also has a podcast and 
he certainly has, in own words, he likes using every single word in the, in the English language, and you'll certainly hear that from him. So if that's a problem for you, I would not recommend <laughs> listening to it. But his website is good with a lot of information. He's written uh, a book called Building a Better World in Your Backyard Instead of Being Angry at the Bad Guys, which I think is a great book. Um, it's a good introduction to some permaculture things and a good point to, to start from. Um, I'd also recommend uh, Guy's Garden. Again, this is not a Christian resource, but it's it's a good way if you're in a small backyard, you want to work on something like that. Um, also, Sepp Holzer's Permaculture is better if you're kind of doing, uh, it's S-E-P-P-H-O-L-Z-E-R, Sepp Holzer. He uh, does a lot of interesting stuff um, on in the, in the Austrian Alps, and he's got a very vertical piece of land that he's worked all his life, and he's got over 70 different ponds on it, and it does not fall off the hill. It's very well done, and he's an awesome engineer, farm engineer, and <laughs> hydrologist, and the way he works with water and has restored desert landscapes galore. So, um, Now, all that to say, uh, uh, back to Paul Wheaton's book, it's a good thing because his whole point in the book is like, listen, everything in, in the environmental world says you need to sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. He's like, I don't think it needs to be that way. Actually, I'm promoting that we can live in a much more sustainable way that actually has a positive impact on nature and um, we can have a more luxuriant lifestyle at the exact same time. And I agree. I think that's a very good way to look at it. I think if, if you just say, oh... Listen, if you want to save the world, you got to sacrifice. You got to stop driving your car. You got to stop barbecuing. You got to stop uh, running the light bulbs. You got to stop having air conditioning. You got to stop running your heating. No one's going to do that. And honestly, no one is doing it. Uh, there are a few people and they get angry about it because now they're sacrificing. They don't see anyone else sacrificing and that causes them great grief. And that's not a good place to be. Um, so I would recommend that we begin to think about this in a way that does not be like, oh, you have to stop, you have to sacrifice, but let's think about what we can actually do that actually is a positive thing. Now, yes, there are some things that need to change. There are some behavior things that we do need to change, and fairly quickly if we don't want to see absolutely disastrous consequences out of this, but I believe God can do some miracles if we're willing to repent and turn around and, and change the way we're doing things. But and he, he talks, and so anyways, Paul Wheaton in his book talks about lots of different ideas that can be done. I mean, if you're in a cold climate, he has this uh, piece of kit, we'll say, uh, called a rocket mass heater, which is really an amazing thing, which will burn wood. It's not a rocket to go to space, and it's not going to use rocket fuel or anything like that. It's just the way it, it works is it, it sucks air through burning wood in a very efficient manner that it burns at extremely high temperature, uh, causes everything in the wood to be burned. So, so there's no smoke that comes out of the system. You actually look up the chimney and you just see hot air coming out of the chimney. So uh, you wouldn't even tell if somebody's burning wood there. Typically you use it um, off of not cutting down a tree, but you can use the sticks off of a tree. So you can keep a tree and just kind of use it for sticks. And if you look at some old paintings, a lot of times you can see these little trees that look like popsicles. Um, there's just like tons of tiny little sticks coming off of them. That was what people did back in the day. They realized, oh, cutting down the tree for firewood was not a good idea. I'll just take the sticks off the tree. And the sticks tend to grow back. So now we're getting all of our fuel needs met by not having to kill the, the organism. Um, and, and this type of system does that. And so it will heat a house incredibly efficiently 
with far less energy use that would ever be done with a, a standard conventional gas heater or other type of heater. Um, they're big. They're not. They're not easy to build. It takes some effort, that's for sure. But I mean, the energy returns on them are, are significant. So. I'm just throwing out there this lot of stuff. Now, a lot of you would be like, okay, this sounds great, but you're talking about you got to have land for this. And and I would agree to some degree. It's 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 difficult to do this if you're in an apartment that doesn't even have a window. It, it's kind of hard to be like, all right, well, how do I do this? And and I hate to say it, but I kind of feel like if all you're doing is living in an apartment and inside a window and you want to save the world environmentally, then yeah, you're kind of stuck with sacrificing. I, I really don't know what else you can do aside from join other people in your area that want to do something positive and they want like like let's do a community garden but really one of the biggest things you can do for yourself if you do have access to land is to grow your own food because the more you can grow your own food it has multiple 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 benefits one is you're helping yourself out and when i say grow your own food i'm not saying like oh look i have a basil plant on the windowsill I'm growing my own food. Do not fool yourself. <laughs> I'm saying I would qualify growing your own food as having at least 10% of your caloric intake. 10% of your of your total calories are actually coming from things you have grown yourself. Now, if you were to sit down and actually look at how many calories you ingest today and what that is, you realize it's it's not a that's not a small amount of actually calories to get in. And so it's not just, oh look, I grew lettuce. Well, how many calories is your lettuce? nothing. <laughs> it might give you better health. That's good. But even then, how much energy did it take you to do that lettuce? Did you just run out to Home Depot and get a bunch of uh, potting soil, compost? I hope you understand that the potting soil and compost you get at Home Depot is actually made from human waste from large cities that where they process all that stuff and they put it in bags and sell it back to us so we can eat everybody's waste and all the drugs and other stuff we put in our systems and we get it back into ourselves. I'm not ragging on you. I'm, I'm just saying, just, just be aware. Just be aware. So if you can make your own, and you know where you can source it from, it's a lot better. But the more food you can grow for yourself, the better off you're going to be health-wise. The less you have to travel and go to the grocery store, the less that demand there is at the grocery store for that food to be transported from far away. Uh, you begin to cut down on transport a lot. Uh, the more you can be self-sufficient, the less you really kind of depend on society, economic, you know, things in general, you begin to have more of a sense of a homestead that you can provide for a good part of your needs. And then within your community, you can provide for an even larger part of your needs. Now, obviously you're not going to be growing coffee if you live in Alaska. That's, that's not going to happen. That's <laughs> you're have some imports. That's definitely part of it. Uh, but I think this is a good goal to, to aspire to. Now, if when I talk about this, some of people are going to be like, no, I would never do that. And that's fine. You're blessed. We love you. We care for you. Feel free to sacrifice. But other people, they're like, yes, I definitely want to do that. And, and there is a large gardening movement going on right now. Um, my, my encouragement is do your research. Figure out what is actually a good way that you can actually provide for your needs um, that's sustainable. Because gardening can be a lot of work or it can be simple. Uh, Mark Shepard, he has this his little you know uh, thing he lives by, which is stun, which is Sheer, total, utter neglect. <laughs> he throws the seeds out there. If they live, they get to live. If they die, good. He didn't want them there in the first place because they're weak. So <laughs> he tries to make nature do its thing, and he tries to get the benefits out of it without doing any work 
at all. Uh, he puts it out there, and it's got to live. If it doesn't live, he doesn't want it. It's not adapted to his climate. It's not adapted to his place. He doesn't want it there. Now, there's a lot that goes into it, and if you want to do a permaculture design course, I'd recommend it. It's it's They can be a little bit pricey. They can take time. It's typically about two weeks. Um, you can do one that's not online. There's hands-on stuff, which is very good, and I'd recommend it. But there's a lot that goes in, into that, and I think that design is, is something that's very good and beneficial to all of us to learn if you're into this. If you're not into this, then obviously don't beat a dead horse. Uh, feel free to sacrifice it well. Now, um, but again, if you're in an urban area, how, how do you, and you, let's say you do want to get out, what do you do? Well, uh, Paul Wheaton again from the Building a Better World book, he's actually coming out with a new book in September uh, called Skip. Uh, skills to inherit property and he's created almost like an alternate let's say kind of college degree program but it's really just hands-on practical stuff so you like maybe your first unit is you learn how to make a wooden spoon from a branch so you cut off a branch from a tree and then you whittle it down until you've made an ugly looking spoon and if it's, as long as it's ugly, ugly enough, and it's, but it's functional enough, it passes. Now, how does it pass? He's got his own little website there, permies.com, and you can go on there, and they'll give you all the instructions for all the different units. And uh, you basically follow the instructions, and you post your, your pictures as required, and then everyone else that's participating in the program rates you. And if you get rated, then you get your little badge bit, as they call it, and you get enough badge bits, and you get to a certain level. Um, the whole point of this being is that if you get to the fourth level, uh, he's got a list of people, and this is a big issue, of many um, older folks who have held on to their family farms for generations. Their kids don't want anything to do with it. And instead of just them selling out to someone and getting it subdivided into a subdivision or something else, they'd like to give it to someone that is actually worthy of working it, of making it happen, of actually continuing to produce food and produce uh, all the goods needed for families and communities. So he's got to listen to these people, but he needs to find out who's worthy. And so that's part of this program. And so you can go through it, and it'll probably take you four years to do everything. I mean, there's there's different levels. Like I said, there's a simple spoon, but then you get to the top level, uh, and there's different, you know, there's about 22, 23 different categories of things you can focus on. So, for example, for clothing, level four of clothing is you have to make a full set of clothes from underwear to socks to, like, hat, coat, shirt, everything from seed. So either you have to plant a field and then graze sheep on it and then shear the sheep and then uh, or raise the sheep as, as ewes, shear the sheep, take the wool, spin the wool, turn that into yarn, and then put that whole thing together. So it, that's going to take a while. But you learn to be completely self-sufficient along the way. Now, you don't have to do that. There's lots of different things you can do. But um, the whole idea is, is it's you're creating skills within yourselves of how you can do that. And they're actually developing ways for, so that urbanites, if they want to participate in this program, can participate as well. Um, and and I, I've done some of them. I've done all of them because I'd run out of time. And there's some things that like, I don't have tools to do that. Or I didn't have the space to do it at that time. But it's like maybe I can plug along with some other things until I can actually make that happen. So it can be done, but you'd have to figure out a way to dedicate yourself. It would become, it would be much cheaper to do this than to go to college. So if you're not into doing this then this is another way to go out there and you could at the end of the day if you persist and and you get to it you get a chunk of land waiting for you you probably get some money in the bank and a whole set of tools and equipment that's ready to help you go and be self-sufficient or even produce food and make a living off of it um now again i'm not gonna lie to you you're not gonna make money selling vegetables sorry i hate to break your heart in that one not gonna happen uh 
but you can have a better lifestyle doing it. You can make yourself much more independent. All right, I've rambled on with this enough, but if you're interested, you can check it out. Um, there's lots of stuff in the on the interwebs now about permaculture. You can check it out. But I just want to offer this as a way to say, listen, we can be positive actors in the world that we don't have to create, uh, don't have to create an environmental mess and then just walk away from it and be like, oh, I'm not willing to sacrifice. No, we can actually do good things that can actually turn the course of the environment around in a good, positive way, as God has called us into, um, and we can all be part of that. So, let's do it. Be blessed. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you on the flip side. <laughs>